Lord God, I thank you for all the people that have come here today, and I pray a blessing on them. Use this time to encourage their faith. Help us see more clearly who you are, and help us worship you this day, this coming year, and this coming decade, individually and as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title is 2020 Vision. Well, what is 2020 talking about? The year that's coming up is 2020. And as we look forward to that, we need to remember, what is 2020 in reference to? What is this year 2020? I asked some of my nephews and nieces over Christmas, what is this date 2020? What's it referring to? Some of them had no idea at all, and I appreciate their honesty. And, and even us, maybe we forget, what is that year referring to? And I think many people around Boston have no idea. Think of that. It's the calendar that we mark ourselves on, and they don't know what the marking is referring to. But the marking is referring to the birth of Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus Christ they set the calendar to 2,020 years ago. That was the calendar that we've based our whole counting system off of. We've set our watch to it. It is the center upon which we're supposed to live our life. And not only that, but the whole world has adopted our calendar. The whole world now uses our calendar that counts 2020. And they have no idea what it's referring to. But I want to encourage us, as the people of God, we know the story about Jesus. We know that it's God come to earth in a baby. We know the beauty and we know the challenge that he faced. And we know that he died for us. Let's remember, every time you see the date this year, 2020, let's remember that Jesus is who we set our watch to. And he is to be the center of our life as well. There's one student, I'm a graduate student minister, there's one student named John, and I think he's a good illustration of somebody who set his center on Jesus. He, I, he was a PhD student, I actually knew him in Baltimore before I moved to Boston, and when I met him in Boston, he was a new PhD student at BU, electrical engineering. I love PhD students in my work because they never leave. So if you get to know one and you have them help you in Bible study, they never seem to graduate. It takes forever, and I'm not really praying for them to graduate quickly. So I said, John, you know you're going to help me, right? And he's like, yes, yes, I know. That's the kind of friend I am. And, uh, and he was very helpful, and I appreciated his help. He helped with Bible study, getting to know new people. Some people that were Christians, some people that were not Christian, he helped them grow. And this is uh, a very important thing, and I really appreciate that. But many students do this, actually. It's a common thing to serve in a fellowship if you're a Christian, to help others that are newer to the faith or maybe they're stressed out with work and all these things. That's pretty common. But John was not common. John, that was Wednesday nights. On Thursday nights, John went to Harvard Square. No, no, Harvard, no, no, Harvard Square. And he went there to minister to homeless people. Two hours a night, he would be there. Two hours a week, every Thursday night. It was in the cold of winter, and he'd be going. And he would go, and I'd say, what do you do? Just give them food and walk away or pray for them really quick? And he said, no, I'm there to get to know them and to, and to get to know their story and to just be friends with them. And he did it week after week, and he shared Christ's love with them. And he did share food, but he also was there to pray and to get to know them. And I just think, wow, that boy John, he is really centered on Christ. And he's living it out even in the cold of winter here, and we have plenty of cold in this winter. So that's just an example for me as a way to live out for Jesus 
and to be centered on him. He had a 2020 vision. And I encourage you to get to know people in this church. People in this church, many of them do amazing things for God, but they're not going to tell you about it. You have to get to know them. And over time, hopefully you get to know, oh, you do that for Jesus? Oh, you give that much away? Or, oh, you've been on those trips for Jesus? And slowly you get to say, wow, it encourages your faith as you see other people living where their lives are centered on Jesus. They have a 20-20 vision, and Jesus is the center of that vision. But let's keep moving on. In the passage, if you look at verse 13, verse 13, when they had gone, that was the Magi, or the three kings, we always say that in the song, three kings of the Orient. Um, there weren't necessarily three kings. There was three gifts, but we, we bring it all together. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. 2020 vision, if you think of like an eye test, 2020 vision means you see at a distance clearly. You see at a distance clearly. The world that Jesus was born into wanted to kill him. We don't talk about this normally in our Christmas services and things like that. You know, we have all the kids around who try to keep it nice and soft, and it's beautiful. I like the way we do it. But now that we're after Christmas, here we are in the reality, and the kids are still in the room. I didn't know that, but here they are. So 2020 vision means you see the world clearly. The world that Jesus was born into wanted to kill him. Herod wanted to kill him. King Herod was scared of a baby king. King Herod had been the king for 40 years, and he was worried about this new baby. King Herod was the kind of person that he killed his own children. He killed three of his own children, history says. He was anxious about a baby king. That's the world that Jesus came into. And Jesus came into this world to save this world. This world wanted to kill Jesus from when he was born. And he lived his life, and he shared about God, and he did miracles, and he loved this world. And at the end of his life, the world did kill him. And while the world was going to kill Jesus, what was Jesus doing? Jesus was praying for the world. He was praying for the people that were killing him. As he's hanging on the cross, he's praying for them. That's the kind of Savior we have. The kind of Savior that even though we make mistakes, we do all sorts of things that we shouldn't, Jesus is praying for us even while we make those mistakes, even while people are killing him. Jesus is praying for them. In this passage, Jesus is like Moses. Moses was born in a time where people were killing the children. And Moses was saved by being put in a wicker basket in the Nile River. Moses went on to be used by God to save his people out of Egypt. Jesus was born at a time when King Herod went to kill all the children two years old and under in Bethlehem. Jesus was saved out of that time by Joseph and brought to Egypt. Jesus was saved out of the time to then go on to be the savior of his people. Joseph, Jesus' father, carried Jesus into Egypt. 
In the Old Testament time, Joseph in Egypt was used by God to save his family into Egypt. You can see the parallels that Jesus is to Moses and that Joseph is to the Joseph in Genesis. Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament. The God that was the God of the Old Testament is the God of Jesus. Matthew emphasizes this because Matthew is Jewish and he's writing to a Jewish audience. We're going to be looking at Mark's gospel soon. Mark is my favorite gospel. It's the shortest gospel. It's the gospel written for athletes that don't have a lot of time to pay attention. That's Mark's gospel. Matthew's actually a longer gospel, and it's, it's more famous, the Lord's Prayer. A lot of things, the Sermon on the Mount, come from Matthew. But he's writing to Jewish people, and he's trying to show that Jesus is the Savior that you've been looking for in the Old Testament. And that's where we are here. In our life, we'll face many struggles, many difficulties. That's why we need a Savior who was born into this world and lived in this world. Jesus is that Savior. He was born into a poor family. He was born, we, we imagine it, away in a manger. No room for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. No crying he makes. I don't know what kind of baby this, this author is talking about, but I've known babies, they all cry. Jesus was born in a difficult time and in a difficult way. His parents were en route. They were forced by the Roman government to go back home. They went back. There was no room in the inn. When Jesus was born, he was laid in a basket that was made for animal food. That is a humble way to begin your life. I feel confident that the people in this room, we may have humble beginnings, but I feel confident no one's been born and laid in a food bed for animals. Jesus started his life that way. Let's look earlier in Matthew, in chapter 1. Look at his genealogy. If you're anything like me, you see a genealogy in the Bible and you kind of skim through it and see if you recognize any names, but you don't pay close attention. I understand that. Let's take a little bit closer look. It starts off with Abraham. The genealogy of those times, it's kind of like what we would have now of a resume or your CV, or your LinkedIn account, where you kind of show your credentials. I went to this school, blah, 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 I did this, I have this work experience, and people look on and go, oh, I didn't know that about you, that's impressive. Maybe it gets you a job, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it gets you a friend, maybe it doesn't. But back then, the resume of old was, what family do you come from? Where are you from? What's your people like? So here's Jesus's. It starts with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's not much better of a resume than that. That's, that's an impressive start. But it doesn't stay there. If you keep reading down the names, you realize that Jesus comes from a line of people that he's a Jewish man, and Jewish faith was a big deal, and he comes from three non-Jewish people. It also lists women, and women at that time were not normally listed in genealogies. It also lists that he comes from a prostitute. It also lists that one of his four bearers had an incestuous relationship. But the big claim to fame would be that he is from a king. And it lists David. And you think, oh, there it is. There's the resume stamp of approval. 
But look at what it says about David in chapter 1, verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, another king. Impressive. Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And if you look at his resume, that is not a claim to fame that you want in your resume. That means that Jesus comes from a line that includes a rapist and a murderer. That's his line that he comes from. So no matter where you're born into, maybe you're born into an amazing family, and I hope you are, but maybe you're born into a family that's been broken. Maybe you're born and there's great challenge in your life. Maybe you have difficulty keeping employment. Jesus was homeless. Jesus was from a messed up family. Jesus was born in a messed up way. And they wanted to kill him. And eventually they did kill him. We need a savior who understands all the difficulties we are going through and we will go through. That's who Jesus is. And he's the one who, while they're killing them, he prays for them. So as we have a 2020 vision, I hope we remember that 2020 has to do with Jesus' birth. I also hope we have a clear vision of reality that the world is fallen and the world wanted to kill Jesus and did kill Jesus. And the world's full of broken people and we're part of that. But I also hope we have a clear vision of Jesus as that savior, the one who dies for us, the one who lived for us. And we can have hope in him. Do we have an accurate view of the world? Do we want to live for Jesus? I think of this past decade, and I think of a couple points that stand out to me. Something that I'll remember. One was a local thing, and one's a global thing. But it reminds me that the world is fallen, and it's messed up. And that's why we need Jesus. Years ago, there was a marathon, Boston, and then there was a bomb. And the bomb blew up and killed three people and injured 260 people. Later that week, an MIT policeman was shot by the same people. I was running the marathon that day, and I wrote a lot of my students to come cheer me on. I was not a fast runner, as you might guess, and I, I thought I might be coming through Kenmore at 3 o'clock. The bomb went off at 2.50. And one of, the, one of the people that died was Lingzi Liu from China. And she was a student who had been to my fellowship. And she had been on retreat with us in New Hampshire. And she was a great friend of one of the core members of our group. And I was so worried that, oh, I emailed her and told her to come. I had to look through all my emails to see if I had actually emailed her or not. I got calls that night from the New York Times, from the Washington Post, all these newspapers trying to call her Facebook page. She didn't use Facebook much. Most Chinese people didn't at the time. But her one or two pictures had to do with New Hampshire, and I liked them. And so all of a sudden, New York Times is asking me if I knew she had died or not. And her family did not know if she had died. And I didn't know either. But they were trying to get the scoop, and they were trying to use me to get it. That's the kind of world we've lived in, in Boston. I don't normally think of like death coming in an instant. I normally don't think of the students I minister to. Oh, I have to warn them, trust in Jesus today because you don't know if tomorrow's coming. But that was a great reminder to me that life can be taken quickly and you don't even see it coming at all.
Lingzi Liu went to, she actually went to the Apple store that day. She was not coming to cheer me on, and I'm so grateful. But her life ended quickly, and we want to be, we want to have a clear vision of the world and a clear vision of Jesus, a 2020 vision, so we can trust him when that day does come. The second one is one that you don't hear much about in Boston, but I think it was very important. I lived in China for two years, and in China you get to know a lot of things about their culture, a very awesome culture. I loved it very much. The food was delicious. The people were kind. But there's also some unusual things. And so one of the things was they have a one-child policy, and the one-child policy sounds really interesting and kind of like a little strange, but for 40 years, families were allowed to have one child. But what you don't hear about is what happens if you have a second one. A lot of people preferred having a boy child for all sorts of reasons. And what happens if they wanted to have a second one or by accident they had a second one? Well, I'll tell you what happened. They had forced abortions by the government and sterilization, forced sterilization. That happened millions of times in China. I don't mean to talk about abortion in America. It's a super sensitive topic, but it's an important topic. But in China, it was forced abortions and it was forced sterilization. And in the past 10 years, the government's changed. They've changed it to allow two children per family. I still am not sure I like the idea of them telling any family what to do in that way, but it has decreased dramatically the amount of abortions worldwide. And that's a great thing. In Jesus' story, all sorts of people were killed two years old and younger. They're called the innocents. And these people that were aborted in China, forced abortions, they're innocent as well. And I just thank God that it's decreasing in number, and I hope it continues to decrease. We need a 2020 vision. Remember that Jesus' birthday is the center of our calendar and should be the center of our lives. We need a 2020 vision to see the world clearly, the world that tried to kill Jesus when he was born and eventually did kill Jesus. And we also need to respond to a 2020 vision. We need to respond in faith like Joseph did. If we look in verse 14, Verse 14, chapter 2 of Matthew, talks about Joseph. It says, so he got up, he took the child, his mother, during the night, and he left for Egypt. Joseph, when he got a vision from God, when he heard, he didn't sit on his thumbs, he didn't wait around, he got up and obeyed quickly. He got his child, he got his wife, and he left. And I'm sure it's not easy to travel long distances back then when you're poor, they probably used the gifts, frankincense, myrrh, and gold. They probably used those gifts to pay for the trip. But Jesus was protected because of his father, Joseph. Joseph responded when he got a vision for what he was supposed to do. He moved quickly with it. He was not like Peter. When you remember, Jesus was praying in Gethsemane at the end of his life, and, and Judas and the guards come towards them. What does Peter do? I love Peter. Peter's awesome. If you're looking for somebody to cheer on the Bible, cheer on Peter. He makes all sorts of mistakes, but he's awesome. What does Peter do? He pulls out his knife. And the guards come and he whoosh, whacks off somebody's ear. They don't always put that in the movies, but that's the best part. And what happens next? Jesus picks up the ear off the ground. He puts it back on the guard. You would think by healing a man instantly like that, I don't know, the guards might not arrest him. I don't know, Peter might not betray him within a few hours of then. No, no, they arrest him, even though he just healed a man's ear instantly. And no, Peter betrays him, and a few hours later, why? 
Because that's the world we live in. That's the world we live in. But Joseph, when he had a vision from God what to do, he immediately went for Egypt. He got out of there and in a hurry. He didn't wait around to see what Herod would do. He didn't try to fight Herod. They waited Herod out, and Herod did die. And eventually they moved back. But they didn't move back to where they were, which was close to Jerusalem. They moved to the north country to keep away from Herod's kids, also named Herod, and their grandkids, also named Herod. Herod's a very confusing name in the Bible. We never talk about this story. We never talk about how salvation was in danger right from the beginning. We don't emphasize this, but I find this story awesome because this is the world we live in where there's all sorts of wars and troubles. If you just check your cell phone, don't check it now, but if you just check your cell phone in the news today, it is super depressing. People are dying, suicides, murders, all sorts of stuff. Mass shootings, it reminds me of the Bible, this same world. And that's why we need a savior and we need to look to him. How should this story change us? I think we should be like Joseph. We, when we have a vision from God, we should obey it immediately, even if it's difficult. We should follow God. What are the ways we can respond? When we see the calendar this year, I hope it reminds you that Jesus is the center. He's the center of the world. He's the center of time, and he should be the center of our lives. Let's center our life on Jesus. And the second thing of this 2020 vision, I hope you see the world for what it is. Don't be fooled by all the false promises of success. It's fleeting. Facebook posts are, they're just a part of the story. You don't see the kids crying right after that picture. You don't see other people's, you know, they're giving you their very best picture, but it's not true life. The Bible does show the goods and the bads. And then when Joseph got a vision, he followed and he obeyed and he lived for God. So maybe God's calling you to move away to your version of Egypt. Maybe he's calling you to change jobs. Maybe he's calling you to be more committed to God at church, to reading your Bible. Whatever he's calling you to do, I encourage you to follow him and to do it. We have two days till the new year. I pray that you pray and ask God, what does he want your next year to look like? And what does he want your next decade to look like? But we shouldn't just read the Bible individually. We should also read the Bible as a church. This church this past year, we celebrated many awesome things. One of the things we celebrated was Hawaii. Hawaiians came back in October to thank us for sending missionaries to them 200 years ago. Seven families left from this church to go to Hawaii and about 100 of them came back to thank us. It was very encouraging. 40% of our budget goes to missions far away in needy places. We spent a lot of effort to support the gospel going forward. And in this coming year, we, are, we just hired, and we're gonna have a new city pastor of like outreach to this city. Maybe they'll outreach to Chinatown and find ways to minister there, or to homeless people, or to people in high rises nearby. But we're gonna have a bit more of a focus here in this city. Maybe God would want you to be involved in some way. Maybe God wants you to try a short-term missions trip. If you'd like a chance, some people are going to Japan in a few months, 
And there's many other places they're going. You can go downstairs right after the service and ask for some information. Maybe that would be a way God would stretch you. But as a church, I wonder, what is God going to ask us to do in the coming years? You know, I'm the minister to graduate students, and so I see this church through the eyes of graduate students and young adults. And I think this is an amazing church, and I'm so glad to be part of it. But sometimes, I feel like we don't do the best we can to reach out to the next generation. And I think we can do better. It's difficult to love graduate students because they keep graduating and leaving. It's hard on the heart. I know it. It's hard for me. And whenever they stay in Boston, I'm always very excited. I'm always rooting for Boston. And I encourage us as a church, how can we, as we reach out to the nations, how can we reach out to young adults and to Boston people? I think one, one small way is maybe the ministers. This is not something you have to do. You don't have to worry about it. But maybe the ministers should take off their robe. Because the robe's been used for hundreds of years to show that we're not preaching on our behalf. We're preaching on behalf of God. But to the younger generation, the robe seems strange. And they say, why are you wearing a robe? Maybe we should take off the robe. Did you know, 70 years ago, we had a famous pastor named Akinge, and he used to take off the robe. Don't let the robe be a mandatory thing at Park Street. Don't let things that are mandatory, that aren't in the Bible, be mandatory. We need to reach this generation for Jesus, because they're in the world, and they need him desperately. So we need to find different ways, different styles. I hope for a new sign out front that's got some cool technology attached to it somehow. And I hope for awesome music in the future, classic music and contemporary music. I hope for all sorts of things that we reach the next generation for Jesus because they need him desperately, like we all need him. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you considered equality of God not something to be grasped, but you emptied yourself and came to earth as a child and became a slave in this world and died, died for us. And we thank you that you give us a vision for this world. This world is fleeting. It is not, the promises of this world are not worth our life. Help us have a vision of you a 2020 vision, help us see clearly and help us remember your birth and your centrality this day, this year coming up in this decade. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.